As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, as always, I'm Tim Wyatt and I'm uh, joined here with my dad, uh, John Wyatt. How are you doing, John? Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, today we wanted to to dive back into coronavirus, something we covered many, many times last year and a bit earlier this year, but it's not. it's been off the agenda for us for a while. We wanted to look at, in particular, uh, as the news that everyone's been following around this new variant, Omicron, I think I'm saying that right, uh, it's first spotted in, in South Africa, but very quickly spreading around the world. Yeah, no, there's been a lot of discussion on such a sort of serious issue as whether how you pronounce it and whether it's Omicron or Omicron. Various Latin scholars <laughs> are pining, but... Uh, probably Greek <laughs> scholars, I think, to be honest. Oh, but Greek, I think you're probably right. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> out beyond, beyond our expertise, <laughs> yeah, either way. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we wanted to start by just quickly kind of summarising why people are so concerned by this new variant. New variants pop up all the time, but this has clearly grabbed attention in a way that we haven't seen since Delta, the variant, arrived um, about nine months ago. Why, why is that? Yeah, so um, as we've talked about before, and as, as is well known, the, the, the feature of the coronavirus uh, viruses, are they, are they, they constantly mutate, and uh, it's very much uh, evolution in action. We're, we're seeing... Uh, effectively survival of the fittest and as uh, there's constant mutation taking place accidents take place in the reproduction of the virus and then if it so happens that that accident turns out to be more effective it it replaces others. What is uh, very unusual and, and, and worrying about the Omicron variant is that a whole it's got a, a very large number of mutations have have suddenly appeared all of which are new and that is very unusual because it what it <clears throat> is not the normal just one or two new mutations building up on something like the delta variant or so on this is this is very very different and the most likely explanation is that is that it's actually been brewing over a long period in in the body of of one individual who um, had an immune disorder, an inability to get rid of the virus. So what normally happens when someone gets infected is the virus only lives in your system for a few days, your body mounts an immune response and gets rid of the virus. But in there are rare conditions where the the people have a, a, a disease or congenital condition, which means their immune system can't get rid of the virus. And that then allows the virus to carry on mutating slowly over weeks or months, slowly developing new mutations. And then eventually the, that the new virus is then passed on to someone else and turns out to be much more effective. And so this Omicron virus seems to be much more effective at, at spreading compared with even with the Delta variant. 
and that's concerning because we know that Delta variant was was more transmissible than the Alpha variant, which was itself about seventy percent more transmissible than kind of original uh, COVID from from kind of 2020, 2019, late twenty nineteen. Um, so there's there's increasing evidence that we're seeing from South Africa and from other countries that that the the kind of the inf- uh, positive rates of people testing positive for Omicron are kind of surging even faster than we've seen with with previous strains of the virus. That's right. And although it's still very early days, um, there's a lot of evidence suggesting that this variant is going to sweep across the world, much as the Delta variant did previously. <clears throat> and um, what we don't know yet, there are two vital things we don't know. One is what's the severity of the illness with Omicron? How does it compare with infection by by the Delta variant? Is it is it more severe? Is it it could be that it's actually less severe in terms of the risk to of serious uh, disease or death. Um, and secondly, we don't know how well the resistance, the existing antibodies and immune resistance, which has been created both by the natural infection and by all the vaccines, we don't know how well they're going to fight out against the Omicron variant. Because you mentioned those unusually high number of mutations in in Omicron and what the scientists in South Africa discovered is that and what really set kind of alarm bells ringing around the world was that many of these I think as many as 30 of these mutations were on the spike protein which is the part of the virus um, which the vaccines have trained our body to recognize if I remember correctly. That's right. Um, I think it's important to remember that the the body's immune system is exceedingly complex and multifaceted, and there are many different mechanisms the body uses. So um, it doesn't mean automatically that all the resistance uh, which has been created, both by natural infections and by the vaccine, are not going to work, uh, but they may not work quite as effectively uh, against Omicron as against Delta, for instance. Hmm. And that's the kind of critical question that everyone's waiting to find out. And while there's a lot of furious speculation online, it's probably fair to say at this point, as we record, we just haven't had enough solid uh, studies to know whether the vaccines that we've all been receiving around the world are are how effective they are going to be about Omicron. We just don't we just can't say yes or no either way, can we? No, and, and isn't this the story yet again that we've seen? You know, how many confident predictions have there been that, of course, this time, by this time next year, the problem will have gone and so on. And, and what we see time and time again is this wretched virus has the ability to surprise and um, evade our predictions. Or And so I, I think it's just, a, again, a reminder, you know, of, of our the human frailty uh, and vulnerability to infective agents, which of course is the story of the human race for thousands of years. Uh, we, we simply cannot control um, these the, these biological phenomena. And you know, I think from a from a Christian point of view, as a medic, I, I often feel that so many modern people, you know, including us, we're all control freaks. We all believe that we have the right and the ability to control our lives, to plan ahead, to know what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. And it's like the Almighty keeps biology back as the one area of our life that we cannot control. And it's a constant reminder to us of our dependence, of our frailty, of our limitation, and that we are not in control. There are things that are above our pay grade.
It also just strikes me it's fundamentally at heart of it. It's a it's a problem. It's a solidarity problem. You know, there's a lot, often phrases that no one is safe until everyone is safe. And, and until we can probably clamp down on transmission in every country around the world, not just here in the UK where we're recording or in the Western countries which have achieved relatively high vaccination rates, the virus will continue circulating. And as it circulates, it will meet other people with unusual or immunocompromised systems which allow it to mutate in, in potentially concerning ways. And so it's not simply a question of... <clears throat> let's help kind of jab the world because it's the right thing to do although it is the right thing to do it's also fundamentally in our own interest if we don't have enough solidarity with other countries poorer nations in particular we're not going to get a hold on this global pandemic anytime soon that's absolutely right but of course it also bangs into our fallenness our selfishness our desire to look after number one and so on and um i i think that that battle go is continuing to go on and will continue to go on into the foreseeable future. I mean, I, I think what we're learning is that this coronavirus is going to be with us and that there are going to be continual new events, I suspect, for years to come. And uh, we are not going to go back to the pre-pandemic normal. Hmm. I was just looking up some statistics just now on um, a very useful website, Our World in Data, which I recommend. And and there, by their count, 55% of the world's population has received at least one dose of a vaccine. Uh, a total of 8.2 billion doses have been administered globally. But if you look in low-income countries, that figure drops to just 6.3% of people have received at least one dose. And until those numbers change, until fundamentally the the richer wealthier nations which are mostly producing and own a lot of the patents and stuff to these vaccines until they are more willing to be sacrificial and to share more more doses i struggle to see how these low-income countries are going to be able to risk to get to the kind of 80 plus percent vac double vaccination rates that we need to, to really clamp down on transmission yeah i think i think you're absolutely right and it is a sort of sad parable isn't it on on a on a recurring theme that the rich want to try and insulate themselves from the poor and and live behind gated communities and and live in a nice world and then and then the poor keep breaking in and keep you know <laughs> and and causing problems and and um and it is a solidarity issue and and the way that we're made again to come back to a fundamental Christian understanding of creation is that we are all the same under the skin and whether we like it or not we are bonded together we are locked together in community and what you do affects me and what I do affects you and and we therefore I mean the a phrase which was often used by Christian social theologians is is we are concerned about the common good we must um, it's not just my good, it's not just my family's good, uh, not just my friend's good, it's the common good. That's which what is what we must fight for. But sometimes what discerning what the common good is in this kind of incredibly fluid, fast moving situation is is really challenging. I mean, just a couple of examples come to mind immediately. We're talking about Omicron. A lot of the world, particularly the Western world, as soon as Omicron was kind of announced immediately closed all their borders to South Africa and neighboring countries in an attempt to try and keep the, the the new variant out. On one level, you could say, well, that was an attempt to serve the common good by restricting the spread of this potentially very dangerous virus. But then you've heard other voices saying, well, hang on, all this really does is punish countries that have done the right thing by blowing the whistle, by discovering 
Omicron and telling the world in a speedy manner we are hammering their economies, shattering their tourism industries. How does that? How, how do you discern where the common good is in an issue like that? No, you're absolutely right, and I think it's it's a very good point. It's easy to think of the common good in terms of cycles, isn't it? Circles. So there's there's the local circle, uh, myself, my family, my loved ones, my relatives. There's my local community. Um, then there's the, the national level of what's good for my nation. Uh, but there is when you've got a pandemic, then it, it is a global phenomenon. And it is about the global uh, institutions, the global ties. And I think this is where we see some real problems in in politically don't we because of the ascendancy of the nation state you know something which was happening in the 18th and 19th century the idea that the world is 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 filled with hundreds of sovereign states all with their own borders all with their own sovereigns uh, politics uh, political rulers all making their own laws and um, you know there are certain advantages behind that political view but there are huge disadvantages particularly when in a pandemic we we need it's the international solidarity which which is absolutely essential because that pesky virus doesn't seem to uh follow the neat lines on the maps that we draw does it uh in its interconnected world it moves around and and doesn't seem to uh pay any heed to the to the slightly artificial borders and boundaries that we draw between kind of sovereign nation states and that's why we need global institutions. And for all their flaws, things like the United Nations, things like the WHO, um, the World Trade Organization, all these things, uh, they have very obvious limitations and they often become quite corrupt. And uh, nonetheless, there is no alternative but having these kind of uh, internationally legally bound uh, agreements um, which we operate together. I mean, having said that, I think travel bans the history of this pandemic, I think, has shown pretty much universally that travel bans don't work. The only the only way they work is if you're somewhere like New Zealand, you know, and, uh, where you're surrounded by thousands of miles of water and, and you can rigorously police your borders. But apart from that, even then, I think, you know, what we know with Omicron is it's already it's far too late to be having travel bans. This this virus is across the world. And one. Yeah. Uh, long before the travel bans started indeed i mean i was listening to a professor a professor of infectious diseases yesterday and he said there's probably already over a thousand omicron cases in the uk right now which is uh three or four times the kind of officially detected ones and that means given it's more transmissible it will quickly outcompete delta covid and so within a matter of weeks or months at most Omicron will become the the standard of COVID that is that is spreading around, and and the pandemic will have shifted once more, and and that was that process was underway before South Africa and the WHO even announced Omicron. It was it was clearly already had already seeded around beyond South Africa's borders. If it even started in South Africa, it may have just been detected there. We just don't know. One of the other things I thought was briefly worth discussing on this question of common good is is this question of um, well, vaccine distribution, which we're discussing. But but here in the UK, people are are increasingly being called forward for a third jab, a booster, 
which has already started for older people but as a result of omicron the government has said they're now going to expand that all the way down to to 18 year olds upwards everyone in the next few months will be called forward to have their third jab um some people again say this is you know an inevitable just the fact is that vaccine resistance wanes so well, it will need to be topped up periodically to to protect against against new more transmissible variants but others say well hold on these are every dose that goes into the arm of someone like you or me who's already had two i mean have you you might have already had your third uh, it's a dose that could have gone into the arm of someone in sub-saharan africa who hasn't even got one and has got no protection whatsoever what, what do you think what is your take on the ethics of of the western world boosting itself and doing a third or even a fourth jab before the low-income countries have their first I think it is exceedingly troubling. And, and yes, I have had my third dose, but I did it with a heavy heart for precisely these reasons. Um, it, it, it does seem fundamentally wrong the way that the stockpiling of doses uh, is taking place in the, um, in the Western world when so many countries across the world have, have very few doses. But a lot of the problem is the practical logistical one now i mean i think in the early phase of the vaccine there was a real um difficulty in obtaining vaccine now my understanding is that um you know billions of doses of vaccines are now becoming available but there are huge logistical problems about getting them um you know maintaining the cold chain uh getting the the people who are available to do the vaccine and the problem particularly with uh, some of these vaccines they have quite a short half-life and um, so I think there are increasing stories of vaccine wastage of vaccines, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, people not wanting to get the vaccine for whatever reason. Uh, so th these are exceedingly complex, challenging things. And I think at an at a local level, although I have heard it suggested that why don't all the Christians get together and refuse to have the booster dose? Um, and, and argue that it should be sent to uh, a poor country instead. In reality, of course, that doesn't happen. That, that That's a kind of rather naive, kind of idealistic approach. So I, I think with a heavy heart, um, it's better to get the protection that's available whilst at the same time fighting for a greater vaccine equity. Yes, I think that seems to me I would take a similar approach if and when my time comes uh, for a third jab. Is, is It's not. It's just not the case, is it, that if I refuse that third jab, it gets sent on a plane to uh, South Africa. As much as I might prefer that to be the case, it will just go into the arm of someone else in the UK or, or sit in a fridge and be wasted eventually. Um, I think what is um, important is that, is that we, the world as a whole, is learning from this experience about the importance of... of uh, addressing vaccine equity uh, for future pandemics. I mean, the reality is not only is coronavirus going to go on and on, but we're quite likely to have another one as well. And therefore, you know, we've a lot to learn about future pandemics and how to ensure that in future mechanisms for ensuring there's a greater equity of vaccine distribution are set up. Yes. I mean, just briefly, I, I remember I was a few months ago, I listened to a fascinating podcast about... Um, the kind of fight to eradicate um, smallpox, uh, which was successful, one of the only diseases we've ever completely eradicated. And it's obviously intensely different to, to COVID in many, many ways. But what was interesting there was that it, we had, we had a, a vaccine for it. And so we had, we had eradicated it from, from richer countries, but it took decades 
of painstaking concerted effort by the WHO and the UN and others to track down the last remaining pockets of it in mostly poorer parts of Asia and Africa. Uh, and it wasn't that the vaccine wasn't available, there were plenty of doses, but it was about the logistics of getting that vaccine to the people who needed it in the right time, at the right place when there was a flare-up. And that, and, and it was until, you know, it took decades until the WHO actually came up with a kind of global plan that was properly funded to, to, to have an army of, of medics uh, in the right places at the right time with enough doses to actually finally stamp, out, stamp it out for once and for all. Uh, yeah. That's right. I mean, but and it's, it's it's a wonderful story, a positive story of, of international collaboration. Sadly, since then, the anti-vax conspiracy theories have have grown in Africa. I mean, there've been a huge number of conspiracy theories about the polio virus that it was designed in the West to cause uh, sterility, to stop black races uh, multiplying. Uh, there've been conspiracy theories about HIV virus and other vaccines and so on. And so there are is a considerable suspicion and resistance to Western uh, created and Western funded vaccines, um, understandably from from people in, in many countries across the world. Yes. And even closer to home, we're seeing some countries in Europe start to take steps towards um, vaccine compulsion, vaccine mandates, um, which is not something that we've ever had here in the UK outside of a few kind of professions like care home staff. But but there's been an increasing move, when, particularly in, in nations that have lower vaccination rates than, than we have here, to actually to put, change the law so that people are compelled or if they don't get vaccinated, they, they live under very stringent kind of pseudo lockdown conditions. Um, what, what's your what's your view on, on that and those kind of moves and, and what impact is that having in particular on Christians? Yes, a friend of mine is a Christian in Romania who um, is in close contact with, with many pastors and church leaders there and uh, another one in Austria. And uh, they are very concerned about this move from the governments to um, have uh, compulsory vaccination. It's causing a great deal of resistance from uh, Christian communities and it's interesting to try and unpack, unpack, unpick why there is such um, mistrust of these kind of compulsory mandates. And I think it's partly comes from the history in Europe of the, um, you know, the history of Stalinism, the history of um, the horrific medical experiments under the Nazis and the even though this is you know 40 50 60 70 80 years into the history they, they carry a very long shadow and a deep distrust that when the government says you must have this medical procedure um that it it, it awakens a, a great great mistrust and then i think there's also the um the very libertarian right-wing view that's coming from the states in particular which is of course a very long tradition in the states of a a refusal to comply with uh, whatever the federal government says you know i i live my life i make my decisions i choose what i want no one has the right to tell me what to do i wanted to ask about that libertarianism because you're right that it's it's clearly a, a a strong theme in in some parts of global christianity it draws actually on what we were talking about before about nation states it effectively recasts the individual as a sovereign independent state and says me the person 
my body is my own and therefore no one else can transgress those borders no one can tell me to put something in my body that i don't consent to do you think that's a consistent coherent christian idea or is it just something that's got muddied up through kind of right-wing politics in america well i'm afraid it, it is mainly that i mean if you trace the origins of that idea it actually goes back to the enlightenment uh it, it's not a christian idea uh, Christians have never thought of themselves as rugged individuals who do their own thing. Um, that that idea uh, grow, grew in the Enlightenment, and of course the Enlightenment was very influential in the creation of the USA. Um, and I think it it became married with a a sort of um, uh, m- many of the dissenting groups that created the USA came from Europe, didn't they? And they were they were refugees from state religion and and so they were ideologically uh, suspicious of any authorities but but this individualism the thing that it is me and my life and my body that 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 fits very uneasily with with um, christian thinking and i think it's actually helpful just to think that there's a difference between autonomy the concept of autonomy which is uh, literally means autonomos i make my own rules which which i see as a secular idea which was comes very much out of the enlightenment versus the the christian idea of freedom the, uh, christianity has always put a great emphasis on freedom uh, in other words that that coercion and compulsion is something that's wrong that christians are free uh, free to choose voluntarily to follow christ to submit themselves to christ um, but Christian freedom is always within certain limits. It's always constrained within limits which come from the created order and limits from other people. It's never just, I make my own rules, I do whatever I like. It seems to me there's almost a biblical tension between, you know, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free and the language of, you know, being in prison or in chains and then through through faith in christ and his kind of saving work on the cross we are liberated we are we are like freed slaves and yet there's also this sense of which we have been bought with a price and it is not i who lives but christ in me and and that paul has language of being slaves to christ himself and so there's it's like i said there's a sense in which christians are free but it's not a freedom to to place themselves on the throne and to guard to to act as a sovereign ruler over their lives but it's how our true freedom as creatures made in creatures made in god's image is found in placing god on the throne of our lives absolutely so that's the heart of the paradox isn't it we discover true freedom by making ourselves a bond slave And, um, and that is a very christian understanding a christian paradox which doesn't make any sense at all in in the secular world um which which wants to then certainly the from the roots of the enlightenment prizes this uh, individual governance of my over my own life and my own body so just briefly then what do we say to an austrian christian whose government has announced perhaps that they will need to get vaccinated and and they have concerns about government overreach you know government state uh, kind of telling them what they can put in their body or infringement on religious freedom like how how should a christian in those circumstances kind of navigate that well i i personally think it's always much better for governments to try to persuade rather than to compel so i'm i would be strongly in favor of redoubling efforts to persuade using all the best arguments and so on to 
to persuade people to get vaccinated. But I personally feel that to go the next step and make it compulsory for the population as a whole um, is is to is to step over a line. How one should respond, I think, well, it's a matter of judgment, isn't it? I certainly one should use the democratic uh, channels to push back and 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 argue against this and, and it may that might include sort of peaceful demonstrations or even some form of public disobedience but you need to balance that against how serious an issue is this I mean you know there are some issues if the government had said that it was banning all uh, Christian worship public and private that seems to me like a much more serious issue that Christians should unite against and and, and have um, civil disobedience about I mean is a vaccine mandate of such seriousness and of such an infringement of my rights as a Christian uh, that that it justifies uh, really strong political action? And, and, and my answer would be no, it doesn't. Yes, I think I broadly agree, although I will admit it, it is the waters are muddied by the fact that there is, a, as we've discussed in previous podcasts to some length, there is ongoing debate among Christians about the extent to which the use of uh, fetal cells in, in testing development of the vaccines is morally com- com- compromising with sin or not. And I think while I personally have been happy to take those vaccines uh, for reasons expressed before, I think if you're a Christian who feels very strongly that in doing so you would become complicit in in abortion and that's something that kind of crosses your line, it is a difficult situation to be placed to be told by the government that you must have this this substance. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a very tricky one because I agree fundamentally. It doesn't seem to me such a grotesque infringement or overstepping of the state's role that it would be worthy, you know, for for genuine kind of as you say, civil disobedience and. Uh, Yes, and, and I, I think, you know, in our polarised world, and, and particularly fed by social media and by the sort of the politics of outrage and everything else, this kind of judgment call of, of trying to work out the more serious against the less serious is something which is tend to get lost, isn't it? It's, it's, it's so binary. You're either in favour of this or it's a completely outrageous and I must fight against it with every sinew. And... and um, the real world is more complex than that. We need we need to understand the greater and the lesser. Uh, I mean, that sounds a bit boring and a bit sort of grey instead of black and white, but, uh, but that is the complexity of the real world in which we live. It is. All right, well, thanks, John. That was a great discussion. Um, lots of things to ponder there. Before we go, however, we've actually got um, a, a really exciting announcement to make, uh, not about COVID or Omicron this time, but about uh, the future of this podcast. Um, we, we've been doing this now for, what, about 18 months. Uh, we've had a great time um, discussing a number of different topics, particularly COVID, um, and, and, and really enjoyed the fact that it, it's clearly found an audience and that hundreds of you are getting in touch to say that you enjoy listening to this discussion and suggesting things to talk about. Um, very much out of the blue a few about a month or so ago we were approached uh by a company many of you have heard of called premier which is probably the leading kind of christian media company here in the uk and they they said that they had also come across the podcast and and basically wanted to uh to integrate 
the podcast into their network, um, which we're pleased to announce that we have uh, we have agreed to do. So from from uh, sometime next year, I think February, uh, we'll be relaunching Matters of Life and Death as a as part of the Premier uh, Podcast Network. Yeah, so it's a it's a exciting development for both of us. Not what not something we anticipated, but um, Premier does have a very wide reach, not just in the UK but in the USA and, and globally. And so it's a slightly daunting prospect that we potentially have a a much bigger uh, listening audience. I think we want to reassure everybody that we're not going to change the the fundamental uh, format. It's going to be. Um, this kind of discussion about recent news items, uh, including health and medical ethics, uh, technology, AI, uh, new science developments, um, and also uh, issues related to Christianity in the public square. Um, We're going to probably have more frequent guests, I hope, um, a third voice uh, coming in to join in the discussion on, on different topics. Uh, but and we're we're going to keep to a slightly shorter format of of thirty minutes and do it once every week. So they'll be happening more frequently. Uh, but we'll probably be, sometimes we'll be doing like a part one and a part two spread over two weeks. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's really exciting to be able to to tackle more subjects, to uh, talk more frequently every week. But also, as you say. We were really excited at the prospect of being able to to reach a, a wider audience thanks to kind of Premier's existing network and um, yeah. But fundamentally, as you say, uh, but don't need to worry. It's still going to be matters of life and death. It's still going to be me, me and John, uh, just coming at slightly more frequency um, and reaching hopefully more 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 ears. Um, we're not entirely clear yet uh, about the transition. Um, we're hoping we might be able to kind of transfer across to premiere so you won't have to resubscribe but um watch this space we'll have we'll have news um uh, either via john's website or or um uh other other formats to to communicate how that transition is going to happen probably as i said in, in february next year um but yeah it's a really exciting development we're really pleased to be an approached um and we hope it can kind of carry on building matters of life and death um uh over the many years to come yeah, so next time we'll be talking, it'll probably be on the Premier website. So um, look forward to that. Yeah, uh, great. All right, thanks very much, John. Good to speak to you as always. And um, I look forward to a, a brave new world in 2022. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which has plenty more resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we've talked about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T.com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter, and you can find some of my journalism at tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic you'd like us to explore, or a news development to respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time.
Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.